Baldo was nervous. It was late December, yet his palms were sweating and the cold air numbed his trembling fingers. He looked over at the hooded monk arranging things on a long wooden table. Are you sure this won't endanger my eternal soul? The monk turned his head, his face a cacophony of dancing firelight and deep-set shadows beneath the hood of his habit. The Lord God has given us providence over the fallen angels. Guidobaldo bit his lip and arched his eyebrow as he turned to look around the room. A young boy, no more than ten years old, was sitting patiently in the corner, turning the beads of his rosary in his fingers as he silently muttered his paternoster. The cold, dark room was filled with jars of oddities. Some held sand, others only seemed to contain dirt. Then there were rows of assorted alloys, copper, tin, steel, nothing out of the ordinary, except for the row closest to the monk. His eyes glanced across the jars of dead animals floating in dark brown liquid and organs morbidly stuffed in odd containers before he redirected his attention to his feet. It's a cold in here, he said, rocking onto his toes. Would you mind the starting a fire so I can try and warm myself? Uh, the monk glanced over his shoulder, then returned to his work. Guidobaldo sarcastically sneered at the monk, brooding over the table in his filthy habit, then turned to look back at the boy. His lips still moved in silent prayer as his fingers glided rhythmically over the olive wood beads. Then his face grew still as he extended his thumb to pull the next beat down to his index finger. He paused. His head snapped back and his pale blue eyes settled on Guido Baldo. It's here, he whispered. Guido Baldo looked to the door. There was nothing. Then his eyes frantically darted around the room. His heart raced as dark figures danced behind the jars in the candlelight. A crude heart with tubular veins pulsed, fingers inched their way up the wall, and two-headed rats reared their morbid faces to the heavens. I... I... Guidobaldo muttered. Remain silent as I prepare for the ceremony, the priest's dark voice echoed. Guidobaldo tried to swallow, but the lump in his throat started to choke him. He fumbled at his collar and craned his neck to the side. He strained and sneered as the folds of his trachea cried out under the pressure of his torrid muscles. Finally, it passed, and he rubbed his neck as he looked back at the boy. The child's cold blue eyes remained fixed on the priest. It is a time, the monk grunted. The wiry Carmelite wheeled from the table. His black habit fanned the candles and made Guido Baldo's eyes strain. He placed a large, misshapen candle in the middle of the floor and doffed his robe. Reaching behind, he procured a long bone that to Guidobaldo could have been human or animal. It was massive. He drew two large circles in the dirt around the candle, one inside the other, then cast the bone aside, picked up a quill, and started writing cryptic symbols in the space between the circles. Guidobaldo watched, dumbstruck between curiosity and horror. He had heard about the necromancer's rituals from a friend, but he never realized how unnatural it would feel in person like his soul was being pulled out of his lungs and his skull ached with the grief of his heresy. The priest turned his dark eyes on Guidobaldo and held out a hand. Five ducats. Guidobaldo reached into the purse, tied to his belt, and pulled out five golden coins. His eyes watched the firelight play off the effigy of the Lion of St. Mark and his conscience echoed with the sentiment. 
thirty pieces of silver. He clenched his teeth and dropped the coins into the priest's outstretched hand. He felt something touch his hand and jumped. The boy's small fingers interlaced through his. Why? What is this? Uh, Guidobaldo stammered. Silence, the priest demanded. The Carmelite produced a decanter full of a deep red liquid that looked like wine, but it moved like it was muddled with gelatin and held it aloft above the candle. Guidobaldo's mind came to and he realized it was blood. The monk muttered an incantation in Latin, started pouring the thick, congealing blood into the circles at his feet. Guidobaldo felt his bladder tense and warm urine trickled down his thigh. He muttered a quick, breathless prayer. Stop that now! Do you want what this spirit can give you or not? Guidobaldo closed his eyes and nodded. The boy's hand suddenly tensed, painfully squeezing the blood from his fingers. He looked down and guffawed. Ah, oh, hey! The little boy's neck was thrown back, his body convulsing, deep blue veins bulging from every visible surface of his skin. His eyes rolled back into his head and his pale blue lips quivered. The Carmelite stepped in front of the boy and thrust a cross in his face, shouting, The power of Christ that compels you to obey me, demon. Speak your name and be banished back to hell. The boy's limbs twisted unnaturally. Speak, a demon. A deep voice barked. A plague upon you, necromancer. What is it that you seek? Tell him, tell him what you seek, the priest demanded. I can see your soul, dark and twisted like the crown of your master. Tell him, the priest shouted, grabbing a fistful of Guido Baldo's shirt. Guido Baldo stammered. I, I am... Um, I wish to know where my brother buried his fortune before he died. The child's head craned back in a grotesque arch, the white pupilless eyes shifting like they were searching Guidobaldo's face. Go to the old sawmill on the Reno and find the center of the structure. Dig for three days and you'll find what you seek. The boy's hand softened. Guidobaldo pulled his fingers free. Darkness and the sulfuric smell of a snuffed-out candle filled the room. Across the city of Bologna, in the affluent western district, at about the same hour, a tall, pale woman and her son, who carried a large leather bag, walked up the magnificent staircase of the Palazzo Bentavoglio. On the 53rd step, they were approached by two guards armed with partisans. State to your business. The tall woman drew back her hood and said, my name is Gentile Simitri. I am here at the request of the lady, Guinevere Bentavoglio. The guard shared a look. One nodded to the other, and his compatriot trotted up the stairs. The remaining guard turned and lowered the head of his partisan. Moments passed before the other guard returned, trotting down the stairs, his dagger beating the cadence of his hurried step against his breastplate. Let them through, uh, Antonio. Antonio, let them through now. Simitri bowed and stuck out her hand to her son, who led her up the stairs with dignity and defiance, despite the burden of their wares. She could hear the guards murmuring behind her, What's going on? I don't know. Seems the little lord is at the canal. Symmetry and her son were met at the door of the palazzo by two more guards, armed with single-handed swords and rotellas. They opened the magnificently carved doors, arched with filigree that surrounded the scarlet and gold saw crest of the Bentavoglio's coat of arms. Symmetry's son tugged at her sleeve. Do you think that's real gold, mother? I know it is. She hissed through the teeth of a smile as she bowed to the guards. 
They were greeted at the door by a man in a fashionable doublet with tight velvet pants and an ornate dagger tied to his hip. My name is Sir Colla de Ascoli. You are the Lady Symmetry, I presume. I am, and this is my son. Where's the boy? Ascoli held out a hand, bidding her to stop. First, here is what was promised. He placed a large velvet pouch full of ducats in her hand, then reached behind him and presented a similar bag of equal size and weight. And this is for your discretion. The Lady Quindavira awaits your presence this way. But before we go, I would like to remind my lady that our Lady Pentavolio is still a Sforza in name and temperament. Symmetry met his eyes. She wasn't a stranger to subtle threats. I'm here to do the Lady's bidding. Please, show me to the boy. Circola bowed and gestured to his left. This away, my lady. They walked down the palatial hall with walls covered in the works of contemporary masters and a beautiful fresco that ran the entire length of the ceiling. There was more gold in that hall than Symmetry had seen in her entire life. Her mind snapped back to the task at hand and she corrected her posture and put on a stern face. Through here, Circola directed them. They walked into a bedchamber where Lady Guinevere was sitting on the bed next to her son. She rose, straightened her dress, and put on a fake smile. Symmetry, my darling, how good to see you again. Please, see to Alessandro. My dear boy is taken quite ill. Guinevere embraced Symmetry, and she could feel the dagger in the lady's bodice press against her chest. Sforza indeed. Symmetry kissed Guinevere's cheek and said, Let me see him. She walked over to the bed where Alessandro was wrapped up in blankets. His juvenile face was pale and tired, bathed in a cold sweat. Symmetry sat down on the bed beside him and brushed his bangs aside. She could feel his little body trembling. Shh, 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 shh. It's okay, Alessandro. My name is Symmetri. I'm a healer and I'm going to help you. Alessandro jerked away from her and coughed as he rolled over onto his side. Symmetry looked back at her son and bade him to come to the bed. He handed her the large leather bag and she opened it, craning her head over the side to peer in. She looked up from the bag, smiled at her son. He nodded to her and took a few steps back. Symmetry turned and laid the bag down beside Alessandro, then peered back inside and fumbled around for a moment before pulling out an ointment. Alessandro, darling, could you look at me? Alessandro grunted and curled into a fetal position. Symmetry took a deep breath, stood, and walked to the other side of the bed. She gently put her hand on Alessandro's shoulder and said, I have an ointment that I think will make you feel better. Can I give it to you? Alessandro's head disappeared beneath the covers. Symmetry looked over at her son. Can you come and give me a hand? Her son nodded and walked around the bed. Symmetry returned the gesture and said, Hold his shoulders for me. Symmetry pulled down the sheets and was taken aback by the sight of the cuts on the boy's arm. She recognized the patterns. She looked back at the Lady Bentivoglio, stern and regal, standing beside the door. The two women locked eyes. This was crude reckless magic. The boy writhed and Symmetry broke her glance to look down. Quickly now, grab his shoulders. She put the healing potion back in the bag and started rummaging for something else, something she never imagined she would have to use. She heard the door open behind her and the Lady Guinevere was gone. A month later, Symmetry shared the same knowing glance with the Lady Guinevere as oil was poured at her feet. 
She tilted her chin up in the same dignified composure she had practiced time and time again, the composure that had helped her sell her skills for two decades as the greatest healer in Bologna, a practiced necromancer and friend of all the high families. Her eyes remained fixed on the Lady Guinevere as the Dominican monk finished his Latin incantation and lit the fire beneath her feet. Sforza indeed. Perhaps it seems too fantastic to believe these stories are entirely based in reality, but they are. Between 1450 and 1500, the city of Bologna was embroiled in a conflict, ecclesiastical in nature, that pitted the Carmelite monastic order against their Dominican brethren. The source of this conflict was the right of monks to summon demons to do their bidding. The brothers of the Carmelite order argued that God gave them providence over the fallen angels, and because Christ compelled demons in the name of God, they could too. This led to a rise in the popularity of an act in the contemporary Renaissance world known as necromancy. During this turbulent half-century, books on necromancy became widely distributed through northern Italy as this debate embroiled cathedrals, monasteries, and classrooms of the Bolognese University, all the way through to the notable families of Bologna and beyond. It all came to a head in 1473 when Pope Sixtus IV asked the vicar of Bologna to investigate the dealings of the Carmelite order. Bologna was no stranger to the practice of necromancy. Inquisitorial activity in the city suggests that the practice had been around since the late 13th century. However, our story picks up in the late 1450s when there was a sudden rise in inquisitorial activity specifically linked to the practice of necromancy and illicit magic using demonic rites. Why the city of Bologna? The University of Bologna was a place of bustling new ideas. Books from all over the world funneled through its magnificent library, and young minds seeking to challenge old norms started purporting once unprecedented and heretical ideas. These renegades of ecclesiastical academia could also speak Latin, which means they had a broader access to knowledge than most, and the act of necromancy usually required some command of the old tongue. Before we get into the historical narrative, it's useful to discuss what the act of necromancy offered and why it was so popular. Most of the common documented reasons for necromancy included summoning demons to help you find a lost or hidden treasure, to give the summoner powers of seduction, healing, or to provide some form of supernatural protection. There were varying methods of performing the rites required to summon a demon, and many of them required extensive preparation, like fasting or finding an intermediary like a young virgin boy so the demons couldn't lie to you. Now our story starts in 1451, when a German inquisitor by the name of Frey Corrado of Germany was sent to Bologna to investigate the use of illicit magic. He honed in on one Niccolo de Verona in particular, and in the same year had him arrested for engaging in magical practices and misusing the sacraments. This is interesting because on Niccolo's way to being burned at the stake, a gallant sortie led by one Achilles Malvezzi arrived at the scene and saved Niccolo de Verona from execution. You may or may not remember Achilles Malvezzi from our St. Petronius Day episode, so I'll give you a quick background here. When Hannibal I Bentivoglio was captured by Francesco Piccionino, Achilles Malvezzi was also taken into captivity. 
After Hannibal's daring escape from prison and subsequent victory over the Visconti forces, he held a prisoner exchange with the Visconti on the Panaro River, where he got Achilles, his dear friend, back. When Achilles crossed the river and set foot on Bolognese soil once more, he shouted, Sega! 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 to herald the reign of the Bentivoglio. After Hannibal's murder, Achilles was one of the most loyal Bentivoglio supporters in the city, and a close friend and ally to Santi Bentivoglio. Why were the Bentivoglio and the Bentivoleschi interested in jailbreaking a convicted heretic? I don't have enough information on our dear friend Niccolo to give a conclusive answer, but later history gives us some pretty compelling clues. There were two recorded trials in Bologna of interest here. The first highlights how necromancy became so popular, and the second directly involves the Bentivoglio family. To start, we have to talk about the latter, the priest Antonio Cacciaguera. Cacciaguera is an interesting cat. He was a priest in the Carmelite order of San Martino de Aposa. Cacciaguera was tried not once, but two times for heresy, illicit magic, and eventually summoning demons. The trials of Cacciaguera paint a dark, sordid tale about demonic presences throughout his life. According to his confession, he was first approached by a demon at the age of five, then again at eight, and once more at twelve. Each time, the demon bequeathed a new skill upon him, skills ranging from curing epilepsy to healing the possessed, skills that he put to work to make a tidy fortune for himself in the name and reverence of the devil, as he'd say, to enact his healing powers. After Cachi Aguera's first trial, he was given a life sentence, but was let off for good behavior and allowed to return to his priory. Not surprisingly, the first thing Cachiaguera did was get his hands on some books about necromancy. To this point, he had relied on the magic demons had provided him in his youth, but he wanted more. He wanted to learn to summon demons to gain their power. So he grabbed a few like-minded or easily influenced individuals, and they started playing around with these texts, buying medals and stealing corpses for their rituals. The other thing they needed was, of course, young virgin boys who could see or be possessed by demons but due to their purity, couldn't be deceived to relay the lies demons tended to tell. Cachi Aguero was charged a second time by the Inquisition in 1473, now led by monks of the Dominican order sent by Pope Sixtus IV to put an end to the maddening proliferation of necromancy in the Holy See's second city, and what resulted was a high-profile case that captivated the imaginations of Bolognese citizens, laying clergy alike. Soon, the whole of Bologna was embroiled in the content of this medicant rivalry. The Carmelite monks championed their right to summon demons and their powers of necromancy to all who would hear, providing practical demonstrations and training to those interested in tapping into their acquired providence. The allure spread like wildfire, and other monastic orders began to dabble in the dark arts, most notably the Franciscans, until these demonic rites reached every varied corner of northern Italy. From the Hubble peasant to the leading families of not just Bologna, but Ferrara, Mantua, the Romagna, and Terra Firma. While Cacciaguera's story continued, it's here we have to transition to our second trial, a story that highlights how this trend influenced both the commoner and the clandestine elite. The subject of this case was a healer, a witch, and a necromancer, common born but widely influential. The subject of our second short story, the lady. Gentile Simitri. Simitri was known as an accomplished healer in Bologna for over 20 years. Her clientele ranged from the low-born everyday person of the city to its ruling families like the Bentivoglio, 
Sumitri was a favorite of the Lady Guinevere Swartz of Bentivoglio, so much so that Guinevere provided a dowry for the wedding of one of her daughters and put two of her sons in monastic orders, likely so they could continue their family's lucrative business. Through the record of Sumitri's interrogation in 1473, we get a diabolical highlight of her traffic with demons. She conceded that she had given herself body and soul over to the devil in the hope of attaining treasures and influence over powerful men in return for the power of healing and the ability to cure people for monetary gain. She learned the art of divination and necromancy from the friars of the Franciscan order and primarily worked out of the cemeteries of the Church of San Francisco in Bologna. According to her testimony, the monks taught her how to invoke the devil, adore him as her god, and offer him sacrifices, which she would do at the altar of the archangel Michael, or at her own home where she erected an altar of Lucifer. Her mentor was a man by the name of Friar Silvestro, and with his assistance, she would enter the order's cemetery at night, completely naked, and exhume corpses whose body parts she would use to create magical potions. Simitri had a sterling reputation in Bologna. She was beloved by all the great families, so it seems like her pact with the devil had worked. But all pacts with the devil have an expiratory nature, and in Simitri's case, it was the most unlikely source. Prior to her arrest and interrogation, she had been called by the Lady Guinevere Bentivoglio to heal her gravely ill son. Her tonic was so affected that Bentivoglio became suspicious that Symmetri was the one who had bewitched their son in the first place, and not long after, Symmetri was in the hands of the Inquisition. Given the fact that Symmetri was a commoner and a woman, her trial only had one possible outcome, death. She was subjected to torture by means of the corda, or rope. Then after a harrowing confession, she was burned at the stake in 1473. Her son was also convicted of witchcraft and heresy, but his sentence was commuted to 15 years' imprisonment. Perhaps the most ominous edge to this story wasn't in the dealers of dark magic themselves, but in their clientele. Bentivoglio, Mirandola, Gonzaga, Malvezzi, Spagnoli. Leading lords, influential men and women, and great thinkers alike all embroiled in the affairs of demonic rites. The Bentivoglio story doesn't end with the death of Symmetri. In 1497, their physician, Gabriel de Solo, was convicted for proclaiming heretical doctrines. Of course, the Bentivoglio were too powerful to lose one of their own to the likes of the Inquisition, and de Solo was released after suffering light penance. And as a result of the trial, the Inquisitor, Giovanni Cagnazzo, curbed his investigation to source out disturbing rumors of a demonic plot to overthrow the Bentivoglio family in Bologna. History tells a different story, though. From the spotlight of their actions, it would seem that the Bentivoglio weren't the victims of a demonic plot to overthrow their ascendancy, but the perpetrators of demonic rites in the city where Yahweh was staying, instead transforming it into the city where demons dwelt, under their constant reign. The leading family in Bologna had, as we've seen, a storied history with necromancers, witches, and illicit magic, notably the Lady Guinevere, who was the presiding constant between 1450 under the reign of her late husband Santi Bentivoglio to 1497 under the reign of her second husband, Giovanni II Bentivoglio. From the great escape of their friend perpetrated by the armed contingent of Achilles Malvezzi, their loyal patron, 
to the intimate dealings with the convicted witch Simitri and the eventual prosecution of their physician, De Salo, the reign of their matriarch, Guinevere, was one pocked with constant dealings of witchcraft and necromancy. In 1496, Hannibal II Bentavoglio, son of Guinevere and Giovanni II Bentavoglio, built a school for the training of arms for his family and closest allies. We know that Guido Antonio de Luca was the master of this school, and among his students were two boys, Guido Rangone, the grandson of the Lady Guinevere, and Achilles Morazzo. Perhaps, given the context of the time and closeness to this story, when we crack open our copies of Morazzo's Opera Nova and turn to his title page where the master is in his armor, kneeling in a summoning circle, drawing symbols of the occult in its periphery, we'll recognize a more sinister edge. forward to another day of ghouls and zombies and other terrifying creatures. Yet for all the costumes out there, there's no doubt that the most terrifying creature to ever walk the earth, to ever swim the seas, or to fly in the skies is us, the humans. If any other species on earth were to dress up for Halloween, you can bet your bottom dollar that they would dress up like people. There are many things that make us so much more terrifying than other creatures on earth, but it is our intelligence which is our true double-edged sword. Under the right circumstances, it can create wonderful things. It can create compassion and give us our spirit of invention. But under the wrong circumstances, that vast creative intellect can summon forth the most hideous of nightmares. The same intellect that has propelled humanity to the moon and beyond, that has let us banish the most terrible of diseases to the garbage can of history, has also in the past been enslaved to an uglier motivation the awful task of inflicting deliberate suffering on other human beings. Torture. Torture was a thing well known to the people of Renaissance Italy. It was as much a part of their culture as were the great works of art that now define the era. The Renaissance was as much or more like the medieval era than it was like our world. Nowadays, we understand that torture doesn't really give you accurate information. In the late 1500s, some voices would question whether torture had more to do with willpower against pain, or if it really did tell something about guilt and innocence. We can assume a few bright bulbs earlier had thought of this as well. But the vast majority did not agree to that. They believed that no one would confess to something that they did not do, even under torture. Now, when we think of the dark side of the Renaissance, the first name that comes to most minds is that of Niccolo Machiavelli. Well, Signore Machiavelli had his own up-and-close and personal experience with torture. After a change in power in his hometown in Florence, he found himself on the outs. He had been a loyal servant to the Republic of Florence, but the new lords of the city suspected that he was conspiring against them. So they asked nicely if he had so conspired, but Machiavelli assured them he had not. 
So they decided to give him a little time with the rope to loosen up his tongue. Machiavelli's arms were tied behind his back. He was taken to an underground chamber. Couldn't very well have him screaming out a window, right? He was led up onto a high walkway, a parapet. The rope binding his arms was attached to a fixture. Then Niccolo Machiavelli was shoved off the walkway. He would have fallen some 10 or 20 feet until the rope ran out. The jarring action of coming to a sudden halt dislocated both his shoulders. Machiavelli was left hanging there for some time as his inquisitors demanded that he confess his plots against the Medici family. They promised his pain would come to an immediate end if he confessed, which was true enough, for beheading was the typical price paid for such a crime. Machiavelli made no such confession, for he had never plotted against the Medici, and he was mentally strong enough to endure the pain. After an unknown length of time, his inquisitors gave up. He was cut free from his binds. His shoulders were relocated. They were given time to heal. Another person might have considered themselves out of the woods then, but Machiavelli had been in the halls of powers long enough to know what was coming. A few days later, he was brought to the falling room once again. Victims of torture often describe the moments before the torture begins as being the worst part. The terrible anticipation of knowing what's coming next. The sense of impotence of being unable to stop it. Interrogators know this too and often draw out this moment, this showing of the tools of torture for as long as possible. And how much worse was it when the memory of the searing pain he had experienced was fresh in the mind of Niccolo Machiavelli. Yet he did not confess. And off the parapet he was thrown once again and again and again. As he was unbroken by the pain, weights were attached to his legs for further falls to make the pain worse. Over the course of a few weeks, this process was repeated six times, yet he never confessed to treason against the Medici. He seems to have not let it bother him much either. In writing a letter to a friend, Machiavelli commented only that he had been subjected to six tosses of the rope. The real torture, he said, was the god-awful smell of this place. As we know, Machiavelli was released. He was exiled from Florence and thus devoted himself to his writings and his studies. This throwing of the rope was the bread-and-butter technique of torture in Re Renaissance Italy. It checked all the boxes for a would-be torturer. It was terribly painful, of course. Can't very well have torture without pain, right? So that big box was checked. But there was a second big box. It was not fatal. Dead men told no tales in the Renaissance either. Another box that it was great to check was the fact that it was repeatable. If you try to torture someone by removing body parts, well, you eventually run out of body parts. But it turned out you could dislocate and relocate shoulders until the cows came home. But the torture of the rope was not perfect. It took time for the torture to work. You needed space for a person to fall. You needed a proper torture chamber. For the torturer on the go, the rope had some serious drawbacks then. But never fear, human cunning guaranteed that where there was a need, solutions were not long in coming. And thus we come to the thumbscrews, the perfect accoutrement for the up-and-coming torturer on the go. Despite its name, the screws in question did not go into the thumb. They simply pushed a vice against the thumb that squeezed it with powerful mechanical force. As everyone who has hit their thumb with a hammer, which is of course everyone, they can all attest that the thumb is exquisitely sensitive to pain. And so this pain must have been unbearable. To make it hurt worse, the rings around the thumb were sometimes lined even with spikes that pierced the skin and so added to the misery of the torturee. Sometimes a would-be interrogator would forget their thumbscrews. No problem. A good interrogator could extemporize with cords. 
A notable example of this occurred during the winter of 1510. The armies of France and Venice were squared off against one another near Verona, but neither challenged for open battle. Instead, they spent a long winter engaged in mutual ambushes. The famous Chevalier Bayard of France had just received word from a Veronese spy known as the Vicenzin that a small Venetian cavalry unit would be leaving the safety of their camp, and the French planned to pounce on them. As they were preparing to make haste to ambush the Venetians, agents of Bayard found the Veronese spy in the home of a well-known supporter of Venice. As translated in the Chevalier Bayard book, this is what happened next. The door opened, and upon the equivocal threshold there appeared, recognizable in the light of von Zucker's torches, the spy, the Vicenzin. Von Zucker was prompt. His hand leaped to the man's collar with the question as to what he was doing there. At a loss for words, the other man stammered and shrank back. Dragging the fellow beside him, von Zucker retraced his steps to Bayard's quarters and handed his prisoner into keeping while he knocked at the captain's door. Already in bed, the captain rose, threw on a dressing gown, and opened. Apprised of the matter, he shared von Zucker's suspicions, and summoning the spy, they examined him. Cross-questioned, the spy became confused. Bayard sent for an instrument, significantly known as crickets, a kind of a thumbscrew made from cords. The man's thumbs were forced in. The cords tightened. It is a scene readily imagined, the bulky forms of the archers with their victim writhing between them. The broad-shouldered German captain, Bayard, his lean face, stern as death. Now then, he said, speak true, and even if you plotted my life, you'll go free on my word as a gentleman. But if you are caught in a lie, I will have you hanged at dawn. So what with pain and fear, it came quavering out, the whole conspiracy, a trap of the Venetian commanders, who had set a thousand men to ambush the men of Chevalier Bayard. Using cords to torture the thumb could also be used in a judicial context when it was desired to minimize the risk of permanent injury. A curious case of these thumb cords occurs in Rome in the early 17th century. Now, this is a bit outside of the Renaissance per se, but it bears examining because of the strangeness of this case. Here, the torturee actually agreed to be tortured. Now, why would someone request torture? To understand that, we have to look at the strange story of Artemis Gentileschi. Artemis was a precocious young painter, born a painter's daughter. She had been so skilled that she had acquired clients of her own by the ripe age of 18. It was around this time when she was attacked in her own home by another painter, one of her father's friends, a man known as Tassoni. He subdued Artemis and he forced himself upon her. Despite her cries and despite the fact that there were a number of people in her house, no one came to her aid. Strange as it may seem to us now, custom of the time dictated that she should actually marry this Tassoni, and she went along with that custom. It was part of the culture. Now, Tassoni was a through-and-through -through scoundrel. He was already married at the time, and he hatched a plot to kill his current wife and children to get out of the trouble that he's having with Artemis, but then decided not to go through with it. When Artemis discovered that he was actually already married, she took the issue directly to the Pope. A very public trial occurred with an almost unreal degree of humiliation foisted on Artemis. The scoundrel Tassoni depended upon the typical kind of lies in the situation. He called upon his many friends to bear false witness and accuse her of being a hussy. But despite the terrible humiliations she was forced to endure, Artemis was not to be deterred. She was going to get justice done. When the authorities suggested torture would prove her case, Artemis said essentially, bring it on. 
The torture chosen for that occasion was the so-called Sibylla, and consisted in tying the thumbs with cords that, with the turning of a stick, would tighten more and more. The cords could grow so tight that they were actually able to crush the bones of a finger. For a painter like Artemis, this was a terrible risk. If the cords destroyed her finger, she might never paint again. And yet such was her determination that to get that ephemeral thing called justice that she determined to risk it. Tassoni was present for the torture, and as the cords were wrapped around her fingers, she said bitterly to him, Here's my wedding ring, and here too are your promises. The stick was twisted, the cords strangled her fingers. The digits swelled almost black with blood. Perhaps she screamed at the agony, perhaps she just gazed at Tassoni with flinty determination. This we cannot know. We do know that despite the terrible pain, Artemis did not retract her testimony. The court was satisfied before it came to the point where her fingers were crushed. They were satisfied to the guilt of Tassoni. He was exiled and his name blemished for the liar that he was. And Artemis's fingers recovered and she resumed her painting. Sometimes the goal of torture was not to elicit information at all. Sometimes the inflictors of pain had all the information they wanted. The world of the Renaissance with the omnipresence of torture, with murders and deadly intrigues, threats of famine, and enslavement by the Turks tended to make people pretty damn hard, pretty fearless, the kind of people prone to doing anything. To discourage such hard souls from committing crimes, harsh punishments were meted out. Something as banal as simple theft could earn hanging as a punishment. These were not hangings in the modern sense with the goal of minimizing suffering, no, no. Hangings were public entertainment during the Renaissance, and a hangman dropped his victim from the gallows with his legs still kicking. The act of swinging appears to have alleviated the pressure on the neck. It was a favorite sight for crowds. Few people wanted to miss a good execution. It also prolonged the suffering and made the death take that much longer. Executions in the Renaissance were apparently a kind of bring-your-child-to-work day. Many an execution was ably assisted by a son who pulled on the legs of the condemned to speed the onset of death. Where a son was unavailable, a lackey hired by the executioner would suffice. These were naturally known as tirapiere, or foot pullers, the current Italian term for lackey. Sometimes the authorities insisted on prolonging the execution. When the legate of Bologna, a Cardinal Francesco Aladosi, wanted to leave a lasting impression on the people of the city, he had hangings done where the victim's feet were just barely able to touch the ground. This execution was then done in the main public square, so the message could be received by all as the victims spent an entire day before they died. Beheading was less common than hanging in the Italian Renaissance. Being beheaded was reserved for nobles and other important people. It also did not make for much of a show compared to a long, slow hanging where the victim danced with death on the end of a rope for hours. However, under the right conditions, a beheading could also be a real crowd pleaser. One famous beheading that got the crowd going occurred in Florence in 1499. This was the execution of the famous condottieri Paolo Vitelli. He was the commander of the Florentine army in the war against Pisa. Florence had had Pisa on the ropes, or so they thought, and Paolo Vitelli had refused to actually conquer Pisa. Instead, he embarked on a different strategy that managed to pull defeat from the jaws of victory. The Florentines suspected that he was playing a double game, that he was actually an agent of Pisa. And after 11 jumps from the parapet with his arms tied behind his back, along with other unspoken tortures, he managed to confirm their suspicions. 
He was quickly beheaded before anyone could intercede on his behalf and save him, and his severed head, with blood still dripping from it, was shown to the angry mobs of Florentines, frustrated at their defeat, and they cheered at the sight of this head. Of course, an intelligent man like Machiavelli was not entirely convinced that the condottieri had been plotting against Florence, but as he put it, Maybe Vitelli was corrupt. Maybe he just sucked. Either way, he screwed up all our plans and deserved to pay the ultimate price for doing so. Because in the Renaissance, guilt or innocence was not really all that important. Florence needed to send a message to their condottieri. If you really screwed up your job, you were going to pay with your life. Cities in the Italian Renaissance were hotbeds of intrigue, rebellion, and assassination. The rulers of the cities were constant targets for murder. In fact, it was a common practice in the Renaissance for important men to leave the house with a cuirass under their clothes. Far more famous men in the Renaissance met their end with a dagger than died from the sword. To stop such rebellions and assassinations, Renaissance leaders pulled out all the stops. One historical character with a creative streak for gaudy executions was the lady of Imola and Forli, Caterina Sforza. When her first husband was murdered, she devoted herself to the task of wreaking vengeance on those guilty of the crime so that none would ever dare harm her or her family again. As her husband had been murdered while inside the family palazzo and thrown out into the main square of Forli, the conspirator who had tossed his remains was thrown upside down from the window and dangled like a piñata above the bloodthirsty crowd. He was torn limb from limb. The second of the conspirators was guilty of defiling the body of Caterina Sforza's dead husband. He too was made a human piñata and dropped into the crowd where his intestines were ripped from his body before his very eyes, his genitals removed, and finally his throat slit. But it was time to really put on a show. It was time to break out the horses. For the last conspirator, Caterina Sforza reserved a special punishment. This victim was an elderly man who had not participated in the murder, but was related to the murderers. The other murderers had left, but this old man was too frail to depart. Caterina had him trussed to a wooden plank with his head dangling free off the back. Then the horse was run around the cobblestone central courtyard of Forley until the skull finally split open and brains started to ooze out. Katarina Sforza was not necessarily cruel just for the fun of it, but simply because cruelty provided the means to an end, to make sure the people of her cities were too afraid of her to dare rebellion. She came by this honestly. Deliberate cruelty was baked into the Sforza dynasty like butter into a cookie. When her father was assassinated when she was just a child, the Sforza family decided to make an example of the assassins that would be legendary. They used probably the most impressive means of executing someone in Renaissance Europe, the infamous execution of quartering. Quartering appeared in many different ways, but the most flashy also involved the use of horses. The joints of the condemned were cut so as to be weakened, and then they were pulled in four directions by horses moving at the same time, until the body came apart. Then the remains were left about town so that people could remember what had happened. This was naturally always done in the most public way possible. Entering a town in the Renaissance, people were often greeted by the spectacle of the remains of so many executed people. As was said by one traveler, so this is to London, not actually an Italian town, but the same thing would have been happening in Italy. There were many heads on the bridge. I have seen them, as if they were masts of ships, and at the top of them the quarters of men's corpses. 
As bad as all this was, in the Renaissance, no one really had so perfected the art of gruesome executions as had the Turks. Among Italians, capital punishment beyond hanging and beheading were exceptional. But the Turks retained among their many charming practices the horrific execution of flaying, that is, literally removing the skin of a still-living man. The story that would have been most familiar to Italians happened to a Venetian commander known as Bragadine. He had led a spirited defense on the island of Cyprus against the Turks, where 6,000 Venetians and their allies held off against 100,000 Turks. Eventually, Bragadine saw the writing on the wall and negotiated terms with the Turks. The Turks, however, were not really interested in living up to their end of the bargain. After allowing some of the Venetians to leave, the Turks seized Bragadine and the remaining Christians. Most they killed, but they were determined to make Bragadine's suffering so bad that he would become famous. Even 500 years later, the description of the dead is just beyond understanding, but here it goes. First his ears were removed, and then his eyes, and then his wounds were allowed to fester in prison for two weeks, only for the most gruesome of executions to follow. In the main square of Famagusta in Cyprus, Bragadine was tied naked to a column. There his skin was slowly and deliberately pulled from his body until it came free in one large suit of skin. His flesh, that is, his muscles and his viscera, were quartered and distributed as a trophy among the Turks. For a final humiliation, the Turks stuffed his skin with straw. Then they covered his skin with his military insignia and created a mocking parade with this thing riding an ox through the streets of Famagusta. Even on Halloween, it seems ghoulish to devote so much time and effort to talking about torture and the terrible punishments inflicted during history. And they do seem so cruelly bizarre to us these days. Even the most depraved regimes of the modern era do not execute people in the terrible ways that they were done in history. Cruelty, as it turned out, rarely served to actually suppress human cruel desires and make people behave better, for despite these terrible punishments, there was always a wellspring of fresh criminals and traitors ready to replace those that suffered the most gruesome of tests. Perhaps it would have been worse had there not been such terrible punishments, or perhaps the deliberate cheapening of human life and suffering kept the monsters that lurk in the human heart alive and well. It was probably the spectacle and the story of such terrible executions that led the founding fathers of the United States to determine that there would be no extraordinary punishments, no tortures, not terrible capital punishments in their new country. The people of the Renaissance were biologically no different than contemporary people. Thus, it is only our laws and our culture that keep us from deliberately inflicting such barbaric horrors upon one another. We should both celebrate the growth of humanity from such barbarity and ward against backsliding. For there never was such a monster to walk this earth as humankind. And since it is talking... Steven. What's up, Joshua? How you doing, man? I'm I'm feeling a little uh I'm feel, feeling a little dour at the moment. Yeah, I'm feeling a little down too. Yeah. <laughs> we had to get into some dark stuff for the Halloween episode. Yeah, it's we me did. Me the heebie-jeebies. What what were you doing your research on? Writing about the uh, the trend in Renaissance Bologna between 1450 and 1500 of the practice and act of necromancy. 
Oh, fun or times. Or summoning demons. Yeah. Wow. Summoning demons, huh? Yeah. That's some pretty crazy sounding stuff, man. I know. I'm just, uh, you know, it, it seems like I've, I've kind of found a, a darker uh, subplot to Morato's image of him at the beginning of his, uh, his opera Nova, where he's drawing a summoning circle and writing you know, illicit magical symbols around the periphery of this. <laughs> so you're saying that Marazzo had a, a bit of a dark side that we don't appreciate from his fencing, huh? That's right. That's Do you right. think he was summoning a demon to enchant his swords or something like that? I think that he probably took the uh, the anonymous author's advice a little too seriously <laughs> and decided that in order to make himself look like a demon, he needed to summon a demon. <laughs> wow man that's something it's so weird the more we research this the more it's just this strange bizarre yet somehow tantalizingly close world all at the same time yeah you know the thing that i thought was super interesting about this entire narrative about necromancy and illicit magic in renaissance bologna was that the characters that are heavily involved in the story uh just kind of echo names of characters that we see throughout our narratives that we've been studying um really kind of putting this history together so names like the bentavoglio the malvezzi right. Right. the sassatello the um uh the mirandola and most notably the gonzaga family um you just, just can't get away from these people, right? <laughs> you can't. You can't. And these are such important characters to the development of, uh, you know, the the narrative of, of historical and, you know, Renaissance Northern Italy. It's it's just it's mind boggling, uh, you know, when you get into sort of the non historical affairs and start getting into the personal affairs of some of these people and start finding out what they're really into. There's some crazy, crazy people, man. That's kind of what makes studying this so wild is just how, without social constraints, how bizarre people can get and yet still be what we would consider functional, but have some strange points of view. Yeah, for sure. It starts to make you look at conspiracy theories in a different direction too, right? Yeah. You know, all the conspiracy theorists are like, all the people in power are worshiping demons. And you're like, ah, that's just silly. But then you yeah. read the historical narrative and they're all worshiping demons. And you're like, oh, shit. Oh, man, this is actually true. <laughs> yeah, it kind of makes you think, oh, maybe there was a reason for the Inquisition that we didn't really know of. Like, <laughs> yeah. there was maybe a lot of this witchcraft stuff going on. And I mean... I don't know. I'm kind of inclined to think that maybe a little bit of it actually did do something. Maybe there was a little bit of uh, magic to the world then that we don't necessarily perceive or understand or even experience now. Yeah. You know, I, I think the crazy thing, too, is there. it seems like all of the people who were involved in this in some way, shape, or form all kind of had their unique um, ending and... I think, you know, one of the one of the main characters that I found to be involved in this entire subplot of of, um, of necromancy in Bologna, and it's sort of a consistent character throughout, like the Bentivoglio narrative, is Guinevere Sforza Bentivoglio. She's just she seems pretty like fascinating, you know. I think one of the oh. big great shames is. 
Well, I, maybe we shouldn't mention this, but in, you know how in episode two, when the Palazzo Bentivoglio is destroyed, I think one of the great crimes is all the family papers are destroyed. So all the records, all the letters that they had um, were gone, and we don't have access to that information, which is just such a shame, because I've got a feeling it would be have just been the ultimate treasure trove. Yeah. So I think one of the other really interesting things is like some of the characters that I found, you know, the, a lot of... There are two characters that I highlight in particular, and uh, one, Kachi Aguera, um, he, mm -hmm. you know, he comes from humble origins, becomes a, a Carmelite monk, and you know has this weird origin story, and uh, ends up basically dying a pauper, right? And then mm -hmm. the other one is this, uh, the Lady Symmetry, and she basically goes through the exact same story where she's, you know, just a common peasant woman who just so happens to request from the Franciscan Francescan monks that they teach her how to become a necromancer and they do and she sells her soul to <laughs> Wait, the, the devil. Monks, wow. The monks <laughs> teach her how to become a necromancer? That's yeah. so insane, man. <laughs> yeah. And wow. the the, cra the crazy thing is is that like through the process of this story, you know, she ends up again dying a you know, a horrible dying death. A She's yeah. She and burned at the stake. But then I start thinking about Guinevere Sforza Bentivoglio and, and all of her ties because, you know, there there's certain events throughout this story. In 1450, Achilles Malvezzi goes and saves uh, this, this one guy from um, basically being burned at the stake. And we know that Achilles Malvezzi was acting on behalf of the Bentivoglio and he was a loyal right. Bentivoleschi. And um, the only thing that really ties the period of Santi Bentivoglio in 1450 to the later narrative with Guinevere Sforza Bentivoglio in the 1470s leading into the 1490s mm -hmm. is Guinevere Sforza Bentivoglio because right. she was, you know, she, she was, was married the to Santé. And then he yeah. strangely died of uh, an illness at age 37 as people who were blocking the throne to other people had a tendency to die of at unusually precocious ages in the renaissance of yeah yeah quote-unquote natural causes and it i also found that it was kind of suspicious that you know she she had hired a healer to come heal her son and this you know this symmetry lady and you know she was successful in healing her son um too successful to the point where she was suspected of actually bewitching the son and that's why you know, she was eventually burned at the stake but <laughs> But dang, you did your job too well, man. That is I messed know. up. That is right? messed up. That's wrong. Yeah. So, but the thing, the, the the crazy thing about it is that, uh, you know, when Santi was dying, Guinevere Swartz of Bentivoglio didn't bring on a healer to heal Santi. Hmm. Maybe she <laughs> called a physician instead. The, uh, Maybe. The the. Renaissance physicians were notoriously useless. Mm -hmm. They had like weird sort of like theories about how to actually heal people that didn't really apply to reality, which was yeah. one of the ironies. They're the ones that got paid really well and didn't actually do the job. So I guess that the fact that she didn't call for a healer does sort of tell you everything you need to know. Oh, perhaps she learned from or, the experience after that and decided maybe. for from ever after on that's what she would do. I don't know. Right, yeah. You just, you know, hire a necromancer instead and then you can actually get the job done, which 
you know, apparently man. worked. So, man, I wonder because if there was like some later on sacrifice to save Alessandro <laughs> Savoia that we don't know of. I don't know, but later on in 1490, there the personal physician of the Bentivoglio is actually charged for illicit magic, and um, and they they go through this entire inquisitorial court case. So maybe she did learn. Maybe that's what, you know, she was like, I need a physician that isn't just going to be a physician. I need a physician that's also going to be a necromancer for my personal physician. <laughs> God, that's so crazy. It's yeah. so weird to think that, you know, maybe it did work a little bit then. You know, I mean, it, obviously it wouldn't work as well as something like modern medicine. Um, but I'm, I'm often wondered if maybe science is just simply a much better form of magic than they had access to at the time. Yeah, that's possible. But then again, when Symmetry confessed um, before she was executed, you know, a lot of her potions were made from pieces of dead bodies that she stole from graves in the Ooh, Franciscan ew, <laughs> cemetery. Ew, dude. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, I bet you had a hard time eating while you were working on this piece. <laughs> yeah, so it's, um, wow. there's, there's definitely a lot there. Um, but yeah, so I, I just I find it fascinating that that the sort of the connecting thread between that story in 1450 with uh, Achilles Malvetsi all the way up through 1490 was Guinevere's Forza Bentivoglio. And the other crazy thing is that in 1497 is when their personal physician is charged uh, with necromancy and is um, you know has to go through the inquisitorial process, and then the Bentivoglio get the uh, the, the inquisitor that's basically prosecuting this guy to turn around and then in, investigate what they say is a plot, uh, a, a demonic plot to overthrow the Bentivoglio. But it feels like it's a little more sinister than that because it feels like they're the ones that are actually instigating the, the demonic yeah. rights inside of the city. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, man, that's a whole line of inquiry to, to delve into sometime in the future. That's going to be interesting. I guess it's halloween is for that's right but you know bringing this all back around and this is kind of how i concluded everything but you know bringing this back around to Marazzo, and uh you know in 1496 we know that um on hannibal started the uh the casino for the training of arms and that's where right. deluca was and that's where rangoni was and that's where a young Achilles Marazzo yeah. was mm -hmm. and uh yeah. And then we have Marazzo drawing his uh, his summoning circles. So, <laughs> so wonder where he, he got that. Bentavoglio seances at the palazzos there. <laughs> that's right. So, yeah, that's oh, man. Uh, still so much to learn and and you know muddle over. It's just such a wild, crazy world. You know the the Renaissance just is such this transitory place between the modern world you know that starts to make sense more or less 100 years later right and the medieval world which is just you know i mean rabbits fighting snails and manuscripts and you know <laughs> just yeah. the craziest like sort of imaginings you know it's uh it's interesting this renaissance transition period it's like uh it's like the brackish water between where a river meets the sea and where it's part part salty water and part fresh water and I don't know, it's just that's what kind of makes it really fascinating to me yeah yeah it's 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 really really interesting you know i mean i think for a lot of us contemporaries you know i've seen a lot of discussions around the symbols that marazzo's drawing 
And it seems like everybody to this point, you know, historically, as people have really started to study Murato or look at his text and everything like that, has always been around the fact that these are just alchemical symbols or even angelic right. protection symbols. But I think that we need to start looking in a different direction and start looking at necromancy texts and the images that necromancers were drawing um, and see if maybe now we can identify some of the hereunto unidentified symbols in Murazzo's summoning circle. Well, I think we're going to have an opportunity to in our second season. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. We'll get some people on. We'll, we'll have some yeah, good conversations. That sounds like we'll have lots of room for good stuff. <laughs> So, uh, what about you? How was uh, how was your journey? Ooh, well, I had um, torture and capital punishment in the Renaissance. You know, just a, a brief look at it because it's obviously a topic you could spend lots of time on. Um, it was a kind of a bit of a Debbie Downer, but um, I think the one thing that really I most took away from it is, you know, people are always kind of complaining about life now and how bad people are now and how bad times are now. And it's when you study history, it, it's really hard to shake the overall sense that humanity has progressed just wonderfully in the last 500 to 600 years. I mean, yeah. you know, if you look at like a terrible, what we would consider a terrible place like North Korea or Iran, you know, th their capital punishment would be considered a joke compared to the standards in the Renaissance. <laughs> It'd be like, what? You're going to hang somebody and, and not prolong it for as long as possible so that everybody can enjoy the sight of their feet dancing in the air? Softies, what are you trying to do? You're taking the fun out of capital punishment. I mean, what's the point right. at that point? I mean, the degree to which people just had bloodlust and, and enjoyment of the suffering of others or callousness to it is... Um, it's kind of mind-boggling. It made me appreciate just how important it was when you know the founders of our country said we're not going to allow that sort of thing in the United States and you know put it in our constitution, which is something that people have been trying to skirt um, ever since that happened. Because <laughs> it always seems like well, torturing people and you know terrible capital punishment that could get what we want. So I I really enjoyed thinking of it that way. Um, the you know, we looked at I looked at anecdotes of capital punishment, a lot of which is going to appear in our episodes on the condottieri. So, you know, we looked at Aladosi's special hanging technique, which we talk about in episode two, I believe. Yep. Um, he had that that very special hanging technique that was, you know, that was onto his own and um, <clears throat> and uh, had a chance to look at a little bit of what. The torture techniques that were used by Chevalier Bayard, who it looks like Rangoni is going to be squaring off in in episode three, part two. Uh, so I'm excited to kind of see how that all comes together. Um, and then, of course, I took a big look at uh, Katarina Sforza, who we're hoping to sort of make kind of the centerpiece or one of the main centerpieces of our second season. Right. That's kind of the plan. Yeah. And uh, so it'll also be interesting because she was known to be really into alchemy and I believe uh, other forms of witchcraft, probably including necromancy as well. So we'll be able to delve deeper into that topic with her. Um, <laughs> well, I wonder where she got that from, right? Yeah, yeah right. Perhaps her cousin. 
<laughs> it could be from her cousin or aunt, whatever they, whatever the relationship would have been. So that'll be an interesting thing to dig into there. Um, anyway, she had a, a particular fondness for gruesome public ex- executions to make the point across, which, you know, is was very much in keeping with her Schwartz character. Um, yeah. We talked then, about that a little bit too, right? When we were talking about Mancino uh, yeah, of Bologna. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then also, you know, and how that sort of a Guinevere Bentavoglio Sforza was also Sforza and how she probably brought a little bit of that that edginess, that Sforza edginess into how she approached the problems of life in Bologna. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And then, you know, I think, uh, I think finally I had a look at... Um, I think one of our, our big goals, which is to eventually get into the Battle of Lepanto in 1571 and uh, a particularly nasty capital punishment episode that led up to that and um, was probably one of the things that helped to unify the Christian powers of Europe against the Turks. So that was also interesting, just reading the details uh, as horrifying as they are to imagine i'm still feeling a little ill about it so it was uh mm. i found it a bit of a challenge but also interesting all at the same time yeah no that's that's really awesome i think uh i think hopefully we'll uh have given people the scare that they deserve <laughs> <for Halloween>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the heebie-jeebies <laughs> we'll be sharing the heebie-jeebies through the headphones <laughs> that's yeah. right yeah but um, cool. yeah. yeah, man, that's been uh, that's pretty great. That's a, yeah, it was a, an interesting an interesting dive into a topic that I hadn't given a lot of thought to. Yeah, it does seem, you know, it it, it feels in some way like after reading uh, what you had written, I was sitting there and I was thinking to myself, man. This torture thing makes these necromancers look like good guys. <laughs> I know, man. Oh, and of course we got to throw a shout out to Machiavelli, who looks like he was on both eds, both uh, ed uh, edges of the torture angle. So, having been a torturer, or certainly one who was approving of torture and also a torturee, yeah. and his particular take on torture that I think captures the ambivalence to you know, the information that one discovers during torture, because, I mean, obviously intelligent people back then probably came to the conclusion, too, that you know, some people will probably lie just to make the pain stop and say whatever you want. So right. his his unique take on that, I thought, was uh, a nice window into people's perspective at the time. Mm. Yeah, poor Machiavelli. Yeah, yeah. No wonder he became so chaste. <laughs> <laughs> it was just he, he had a rough um, did have a rough yeah yeah although you know there's an element to him that seems a bit of a an idealist so he seems like a chastened idealist unlike Guitardini who probably never believed in anything his whole life <laughs> except for you know Guitardini <laughs> right the original nihilist yeah, exactly. Yeah, the world's going to go to hell in a handbasket, but me, I'm going to do just fine. That's right. Yeah, this, this has been a, a really fun adventure, um, and it's uh, it's been wild how many characters we've been able to touch throughout you know, the narratives that we've been studying and, oh, and kind of 
transient. Yeah. But yeah, and how these you know you just kind of come across these people all over again, and how they you know they just kind of get connected to this broader story that's there. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it creates a lot of fun little narratives. You know, I'm, yes. the the entire time you know I'm sitting there, reading about the Bentivolios sort of. Uh, dealings with the uh the necromancers and summoning demons and so on and so forth and then sitting there thinking to myself you know if this is the case maybe there's more to you know pope julius and maybe what if pope julius is the good guy and he's just stopping this like <laughs> demonic yeah, rain right? over the city of Bologna. right right that's a whole <laughs> other angle we have to look at yeah maybe there's this whole thing that doesn't make sense to us as moderns but made sense to people at the time right so, you know, the fact that this all kind of comes to a head in 1497 and really kind of continues through the first parts of the 1500s, it's just like, okay, there's a lot going on. And the Inquisition was incredibly active in the city of Bologna trying to put a stop to all this. Yeah, it's such a so, great find that you came across that. It's such a unique a, window into life at the time. Yeah, it's a great article. Um, I should, uh, give me one second, I'm going to pull this up. So the article that I ended up finding um, was a art journal article in Renaissance Quarterly from Cambridge University Press, which is The Demons and the Friars, Illicit Magic and Medicant Rivalry in Renaissance Bologna. And uh, incredibly <laughs> insightful that piece. Says it all. Yeah. <laughs> Written by uh, Tamar Herzig. So okay. thank you, Tamar. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Tamar. Very good stuff. Yeah. So, uh, wow. I think that, uh, that very well does it for our Halloween episode. Uh, any final thoughts there, Steven? Um, no, no, I, I think that, uh, I think we pretty much covered everything. Just looking forward to where this journey of discovery of, of the history of this time takes us next. It's just a fascinating river that just, turns and twists in unusual directions and find strange strange tributaries along the way that's right I, did you see this one coming <laughs> no no i did not <laughs> yeah me either. me either yeah but it's fascinating it's just it's oh definitely God. fascinating so it's we'll wild. keep digging and we'll keep uh doing research and exploring and like you said finding those tributaries and and providing them for you our audience and uh, happy Halloween to all of you. Happy Halloween. Stay hungry, my friends. <laughs> <laughs>